Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 15th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast first thing, this one coming from KCRG. Cloudier, but still warm today, with rain moving in on Saturday. A couple of nearby storm systems provide some unsettled weather as we head into the weekend. We'll see the first signs of this on Friday in the form of more widespread cloud cover. Some breaks in the clouds, or some thinner patches, will allow occasional peaks of sunshine today, especially earlier than later. A light southerly wind will help push temperatures up a bit again, with readings into the upper 40s to near 50s in the afternoon. Rain should hold off until well after dark, with most areas staying dry until later overnight. Showers become possible for our western and southern counties tonight first, then spreading across more of the area toward daybreak on Saturday. Rain and showers continue at times through much of the day Saturday, perhaps peaking a bit around lunchtime and into the early afternoon. Activity should wind down in the evening. Temperatures will be back in the low to mid-40s, making for a chilly, wet day. Rainfall totals could reach one quarter of an inch in many locations, which is a decent amount for mid-December. We'll still be running behind in most areas for the month, but any little bit helps this time of year. We should be dry again on Sunday, with reasonably warm temperatures in the upper 30s to mid-40s. Some sunshine should make a return at times, too. Due to a strengthening storm system moving up the east coast, along with a cold front moving through, colder air will pour into the region on Sunday night into Monday. This will be pushed in by blustery northwest winds, making it feel even cooler than the dropping thermometer readings. At this point, it appears that highs could struggle to reach even the low 30s in some spots, with wind chills a factor throughout the day. After a chilly day on Tuesday, expect a warm-up to take place later next week. This brings in high temperatures back into the mid to upper 40s for most of us, with lows in the low to mid 30s. Some shower chances accompany this warmth by the end of the work week, that's next week, into the days just before Christmas. Though it appears we should be warm enough to keep it liquid rain, and avoid travel concerns. Well, looking at the front page today, we have two political articles to read. The first one, Trump's Closing Pitch. This article was written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline, Coralville. Former President Donald Trump continued his swipes at Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and urged his supporters to show up in force to caucus for him on January 15th and not take his commanding lead in the polls for granted. Quote, on Monday, January 15th, we are going to win the Iowa caucuses, then we are going to crush crooked Joe Biden next November, Trump said in a Commit to Caucus campaign event at the Hyatt Regency Coralville Hotel and Conference Center. Trump holds a 32 percentage point lead over his nearest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, according to the latest state polling. An Iowa poll released Monday from the Des Moines Register 
NBC News, and Mediacom, shows Trump with a 51% support among likely Iowa Republican caucus goers, followed by DeSantis at 19%, and Nikki Haley, who served as ambassador to the United Nations under Trump, at 16%. Quote, We are ahead by a lot, but you have to go out and vote. The margin of victory is so important, unquote. Trump told the crowd of a few hundred gathered in a hotel ballroom, quote, The more we win by, the more we have a voice. We have to put up big numbers, unquote. Iowa will hold the first Republican presidential nominating contest in just more than a month. Trump criticized Democratic President Joe Biden for his handling of the economy and border security, blaming Biden's immigration and climate policies and electric vehicle incentives for driving inflation, high energy prices, and a surge in illegal border crossings. He touted signing measures, cutting taxes, and forcing asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are pending, and pledged to boost domestic energy production. Quote, During this holiday season, families all across America are struggling under the brutal weight of Bidenomics, Trump said. The Biden administration is running on the fumes of the great success of the Trump administration. With your vote, by Christmas 2024, the momentum of our victory will have the U.S. economy roaring back, and 2025 will be one of the greatest economic years this nation has ever recorded. People will stop coming to the border because they know, like just three years ago, they won't be able to get through, unquote. Trump promised to conduct, quote, the largest domestic deportation operation in American history, should he win election to a second term in 2024. Doing so would require building large camps to house migrants waiting for deportation and tapping federal and local law enforcement to assist with large-scale arrests of undocumented immigrants across the country. If elected, Trump said he would also immediately restore and expand a travel ban on entry into the U.S. from Muslim-majority countries and proposed, quote, strong ideological screening of immigrants. The GOP presidential frontrunner also vowed to protect police from any and all legal liability. Quote, I'm going to indemnify through the federal government all police officers and law enforcement officials across the United States from being destroyed by the radical left for taking strong actions on crime, Trump said. Critics argue doing so would prevent individuals from holding law enforcement accountable for abuse and misconduct. Trump also continued his relentless, unproven claims that the 2020 presidential election was, quote, rigged, and claimed Biden has weaponized the Justice Department against his chief 2020 rival, who faces indictments that amount to more than 90 felony charges. Trump has been indicted by federal grand juries composed of average citizens following investigations that included witness testimony and a trove of evidence over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. The former president, who faces felony charges over efforts to overturn the 2020 election, 
groused that his indictments took years, claiming they were politically timed and intended to torpedo his candidacy. He also reiterated his disapproval of Reynolds's endorsement of DeSantis. Reynolds initially pledged to remain neutral in the Iowa caucuses. Trump continued to take credit for Reynolds's election victories in 2018 and 2022, and cites a morning consult poll showing Reynolds's approval rating was at 49%, and her disapproval at 47%. The latter is the highest number in the nation, making her, quote, America's most unpopular governor, according to Morning Consult. Reynolds, however, remains popular among Republicans in the state, with 81% viewing her favorably, according to an August Iowa poll. Reynolds outperformed the Republican 2024 field, including Trump, who was rated favorably by 65% of likely Iowa caucus goers. Trump on Wednesday also gave a shout-out to Iowa punter Tory Taylor, who was in the crowd. Quote, He's going to make a lot of money. I wish I were his agent, Trump said, calling the Australian-born Hawkeye football player, quote, a beautiful, big, strong, physical specimen, unquote. Trump asked if Taylor were from Iowa. Quote, you're from Australia? Well, we'll adopt you, he said. He is part of Central Casting. He's going to be a great one, unquote. Anastasia Moemkambaba, 23, of Iowa City, was among the couple hundred people who waited in line to hear Trump speak inside the hotel ballroom. The Kirkwood Community College student studying criminal justice plans to participate in the Iowa caucuses for the first time on January 15th. She said she's undecided which candidate she'll support in the caucuses, but that Trump is at the top of the list, followed by DeSantis. Quote, someday I want to work on politics as well, and I want to see how everything is run and encourage other young people to get involved in politics as well, she said. Quote, because the way our country is running, it doesn't seem like everything is going as it should be, unquote. She cited inflation and a perception of worsening crime across the country. Violent crime across the U.S. decreased last year, dropping to about the same level as before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. But property crimes rose substantially, according to data in the FBI's annual crime report released in October. She said her family is in need of a new car, but cannot afford it due to increased housing, food, and other living costs. Quote, I'm a full-time student and trying to afford house, a car, and other stuff like we can't do that right now, she said. When Nkamba said she also liked Trump's America First approach to foreign policy, trade, and national security that centers on reducing U.S. trade deficits and for the U.S. to become less involved in foreign matters. Quote, I feel like when Trump was in the office, the country was pretty calm, when Nkamba said. Quote, it was divided, but people felt like they were safe and they had the money to put food on the table, unquote. She said she's not concerned about Trump's multiple criminal indictments and does not believe there's enough evidence to support his prosecution. That, despite surveillance video, 
text messages and other communications unearthed of efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Trump faces criminal charges that include conspiracy to defraud the United States and witness tampering. Quote, I feel like they're looking for anything to charge him with anything, when Kamba said, quote, but I don't feel like that really reflects on his leadership, unquote. Dan Redinger, 43, of Bettendorf, said he plans to support Trump in the caucuses, partly because of his perseverance and ability to continue on in the wake of multiple criminal prosecutions. Quote, it's also about the economy, the border, said Rittinger. Asked if Trump calling his political opponents vermin, who he will root out, reigniting criticism that the former president would abuse his power to seek retribution against his rival and news media if he returns to the White House. Connie Dowling, 67, of West Des Moines, shrugged and said, that's Trump. Quote, that's just him. That's how he relates to people, Dowling said. Quote, that's just him. He speaks off the cuff. It doesn't bother me, unquote. Twice during a town hall on Fox News last week in Davenport, Sean Hannity asked Trump to say that he would not abuse presidential power and retaliate against his political opponents if elected next year. Both times, Trump declined to give an outright denial. Iowa and National Democrats note Trump has continued to double down on his call to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Doing so, they argue, would mean tens of millions of Americans will have their health care coverage endangered, and as many as 135 million Americans with pre-existing conditions could be subject to discrimination from insurance companies. Quote, it's just a shame that Donald Trump is once again putting this MAGA agenda ahead of the needs of Iowans, and it really is important to understand that repealing the Affordable Care Act would devastate Iowa. Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said, ahead of Trump's campaign stop, Hart and California Democrat U.S. Representative Amy Barra, a physician, also attacked Trump for his support of abortion restrictions as women across the country grapple with a patchwork of tightening restrictions. It comes days after the Texas Supreme Court overturned a lower court order allowing an abortion for a pregnant woman whose fetus was diagnosed with a fatal condition. The lawsuit is believed to be one of the first attempts in the country by an individual seeking a court-ordered abortion since conservative Supreme Court justices appointed by Trump helped overturn federal abortion protections last year. Next, DeSantis looks to debates, town halls, for caucus bump. Story written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is pursuing high-profile media appearances in Iowa in the weeks ahead of the Republican first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses, hoping televised town halls, debates, and on-the-ground organizing can win him support with the state's Republican voters. In a call with reporters on Wednesday, DeSantis said he wants to participate in as many Iowa town halls and debates 
as possible to win over undecided voters and persuadable Trump supporters. Quote, we're going to be doing all available options that we can do to be able to press the case, DeSantis said. Iowa's Republican caucuses will take place on January 15th, kicking off the party's national presidential primary. Jake Tapper moderated a CNN-hosted town hall with DeSantis in Des Moines on Tuesday, and DeSantis said the campaign is working with other networks to host similar events. He also said he's pushing for multiple debates in Iowa before the caucuses. The Republican National Committee has paused hosting debates and will allow candidates to participate in non-sanctioned debates before the first nominating contests. DeSantis called on both former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump to participate in a January 10th debate CNN plans to host at Drake University in Des Moines. Quote, The notion that you just don't show up, you don't answer questions, you're not willing to debate, that's going to be meaningful to a lot of voters, DeSantis said. Trump has not participated in previous debates, and he is not expected to attend the Iowa debate. Haley has not committed to attending the CNN debate, but her campaign said she is planning to debate in Iowa and is considering multiple offers. Quote, since the RNC pulled out of the debates, many new offers have come in, said Haley's spokesperson, Olivia Perez-Cubas. We're looking forward to debating in Iowa and continuing to show voters why Nikki is the best candidate to retire Joe Biden and save our country. That debate should include Donald Trump, unquote. When asked if Trump would attend the Iowa debate, his campaign spokesperson, Stephen Chung, pointed to polling that shows him far ahead of his primary opponents. Quote, President Trump is dominating every single poll by historic margins, Chung said in an email. These other candidates are currently sitting at the kids' table, wishing they could graduate to the adult table, unquote. The criteria for the CNN debate, which requires a candidate receive at least 10% in three national and or Iowa polls, will likely limit participation to only Trump, DeSantis, and Haley. Polling suggests Trump is the clear favorite of Iowa Republican caucus goers, with candidates like DeSantis and Haley lagging behind in their support levels. A Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll released Monday showed Trump was supported by 51% of likely caucus goers. DeSantis took 19% of support in that poll, while Haley had support from 16%. Despite the major gap in polling, DeSantis said Wednesday that he thinks he has the ability to convince Iowa voters who see him on the ground or in events like debates and town halls. He said high-profile endorsements from Governor Kim Reynolds and family leader, CEO, and President Bob Vanderplatz will help drive up his support levels. Quote, what we find when we're out on the ground, when people who are nominal Trump supporters come, we convert them. We flip them, DeSantis said. He's the one they know. He's got the name ID. But if they see that there's a conservative alternative that they can have confidence in, 
They're absolutely willing to go there, unquote. DeSantis, who boasted an on-the-ground operation, said he outperformed that of any other candidates. He said his campaign has solicited a massive number of caucus commitments from voters that come to his events. DeSantis has become more critical of Trump in recent weeks, attacking him for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and saying he did not follow through on his promises when he was elected in 2016. The Florida governor said Wednesday he is the only candidate that can consolidate the support to beat Trump in the primary, arguing Haley's positions are too moderate to win over conservative voters. DeSantis accused Haley of being too liberal for the Republican electorate, saying she represents, quote, the failed political establishment of yesteryear, unquote. He pointed to support Haley has received from high-dollar donors like LinkedIn co-founder Reed Hoffman, who last week donated $250,000 to the Super PAC backing Haley. Quote, the reality is, I'm the only one that could possibly defeat Donald Trump in a primary, in a one-on-one, because I have the ability to win voters who are very conservative, conservative, somewhat conservative, in a way that the other candidates just simply cannot, DeSantis said. Haley has deflected attacks about her record and supporters, arguing she is a thoroughly conservative Republican. During a, a debate last week, Haley pointed to issues she supported as governor, like tort reform and immigration restrictions. Quote, look, we will take support from anybody we can take support from. But I have been a conservative fighter all my life, she said. Quote, I was a Tea Party candidate when I became governor, unquote. Amazon agrees to take over Cedar Falls industrial land for future distribution facility. Dateline Cedar Falls. Amazon quietly acquired approximately nine acres in the city's Viking Road Industrial Park and is planning to construct a 53,230-square-foot distribution center, the courier has learned. According to property records, the multinational technology giant based in Seattle, Washington, received the deed in an October 18th transfer of land at the southwest corner of Venture Way and Innovation Drive from Minneapolis, Minnesota-based Ryan Companies, a commercial real estate developer. Economic Development Coordinator Shane Graham previously told the City Council that the distribution facility would be around 50,000 square feet and noted the site has lots of room for truck delivery and employee parking. Here, the courier runs a picture of the back of a Amazon semi-truck, which is, has the slogan, There's more to prime, a truckload more. Ryan Companies acquired the land from the city at no cost this summer as part of a package of economic development incentives for the project included in a 50-plus page development agreement. The northern portion of the site, adjacent to the new intersection, is approximately a 1,000 feet from Ted Electric, Cedar Valley Gymnastics Academy, the gym, and LNN Transportation Services. Google Maps labels 
6417 Innovation Drive as a warehouse with the name Project Panther. Andy Moffat, a vice president of real estate development at Ryan, referred questions to Amazon. A spokesperson for the tech firm focused on e-commerce, cloud computing, online advertising, digital streaming, and artificial intelligence, declined comment on Wednesday. Arrest made in weekend shooting that led to man's hospitalization. Dateline Waterloo. One person has been arrested in connection with a shooting that sent a man to the hospital early Sunday morning. Police arrested McQuain Shaquin Smith, 29, of 604 Warren Drive for one count of felon in possession of a firearm. According to court records, Richard Sturdivant was at 2018 Glenwood Street around 4.45 a.m. Sunday when a number of people arrived in a Chevrolet avalanche. A confrontation ensued, and Sturdivant was assaulted and shot multiple times. The suspects then fled the area. Paramedics with the Waterloo Fire Rescue took him to Unity Point Health Allen Hospital for treatment, where he remains on Monday. Authorities said Smith is prohibited from handling firearms because of a 2016 felony conviction. The case remains under investigation. Smith was arrested at his home around 11.45 a.m. on Sunday. High School Girls Wrestling, Cedar Falls wins back-to-back Battle of Waterloo titles. Dateline Waterloo. When the pairings and seeds for the Battle of Waterloo were released Sunday, the Cedar Falls girls were not enamored with where they were seated. Instead of getting upset about it, the Tigers collectively came together and decided to prove the doubters wrong. By the end of the Thursday's 24-team dual tournament at Young Arena, there was little doubt who had the best dual team. Winning by a margin of 36.2 points and cementing its second consecutive Battle of Waterloo crown, with 58-21 win in the championship pool over Waverly Shellrock, Cedar Falls raised the championship belt over its heads. Quote, we came into it kind of the underdog, head coach Ali Gerbrecht said. We didn't get the seed we wanted. We just decided that doesn't matter. We were going to go out and prove everybody that we deserve to be at the time. Quote, that was the mindset. The Tigers advanced to the championship pool by beating Denver 72 and 10, Independence 64 to 18, and bracket top seed Ankeny 51 to 29, before it edged Bettendorf 48 to 34 in its closest duel of the day. Chloe Otzler at 105 went 5 and 0 with three pins. Laura Witt went 5-0 with four pins at 110, and Briar Ludman went 5-0 with three pins and a major decision to pace Cedar Falls. But Gerbrecht said it wouldn't be hard to pinpoint how every starter contributed one way or another in the victory. Quote, We have some great leaders on the team, Gerbrecht said. It definitely would not be the same team without them. 
I can't list them all because each girl stepped up in each duel in different ways. I think this is so important about our lineup is these girls care so much. Though if somebody is down, they are ready and willing to step up and fill that spot, unquote. In the match against WSR that sealed the victory, Cedar Falls never trailed. The Gohawks, banged up and battling illness, forfeited at two of the first four weights, handing the Tigers an early lead, and WSR was never able to string back-to-back wins in the match like it did in its 42-36 win over Bettendorf in its first championship pool duel. And now, listeners, we'd like to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 15th, on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the New York Times, written by Jesse Wegman. It's titled, The Supreme Court Can Stop Trump's Delay Game. This is a good week to remember that in the hours after Senate Republicans refused to convict Donald Trump for inciting the January 6th Capitol attack, Mitch Mitchell, the Republican leader, offered a hint of future comeuppance for the former president. Mr. Trump, he said, was still liable for everything he did as president. Quote, he didn't get away with anything yet. Yet, Mr. McConnell said on the Senate floor on February 13, 2021. Quote, we have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Unquote. Almost three years later, we are approaching the moment of truth. Mr. Trump, under federal indictment for his role in the insurrection, is attempting to evade legal accountability, as he always has, by delay and misdirection. On Monday night, the case reached the Supreme Court, where litigation is normally measured in months, if not years. That's understandable, especially when legal issues are complex or involve matters of great public significance. The course of justice is slow and steady, as the tortoise sculptures scattered around the court's building at 1 First Street symbolize. But sometimes, time is of the essence. That's the case now, as the court weighs whether to expedite the case against Mr. Trump, who is trying to get his criminal charges thrown out a few weeks before the Republican primaries begin, and less than a year before the 2024 election. Last week, after the federal trial judge, Tanya Chutkin, rejected Mr. Trump's legal arguments that he is immune from prosecution, he appealed to the federal appeals court in Washington, a process that he clearly hoped would add weeks of delay. The special counsel, Jack Smith, countered by going directly to the Supreme Court, asking the justices to take the case away from the appeals court and rule quickly. It was, he acknowledged, quote, an extraordinary request for an extraordinary case. The justices took the hint, ordering Mr. Trump to file his response by next week, 
lightning speed compared with the court's usual pace, the prosecution was further complicated on Wednesday when the justices agreed to hear a case challenging the government's reliance on a particular obstruction charge against hundreds of January 6th attackers and against Mr. Trump himself. Prosecuting a presidential candidate during a campaign is not an ideal situation. Still, the justices were right not to sit on Mr. Smith's appeal. The American people deserve to know, well before they head to the polls, whether one of the two probable major party candidates for president is a convicted criminal, whether he's guilty, no less, of conspiring to subvert the outcome of a free and fair election to keep himself in power. The January 6th trial, one of four Mr. Trump is expected to face over the coming months, and arguably the most consequential, is scheduled to start in early March, and it cannot move forward until the court decides whether he, as a former president, is immune from prosecution for his actions while in office. The good news is there's nothing stopping them. The justices are fully capable of acting fast when the circumstances demand. Consider the 2000 presidential election. The dispute over Florida's vote count rocketed up to the court not once but twice in a matter of days in early December. The court issued its final opinion in Bush v. Gore, which was 61 pages in all, including dissents, barely 24 hours after hearing oral arguments. In 1974, the court managed to decide another hugely consequential case involving the presidency, Richard Nixon's refusal to turn over his secret Oval Office tapes over the course of a few weeks in June and July. The court's ruling, which came out during its summer recess, went against Mr. Nixon and led to his resignation shortly afterward. The stakes in both cases were extraordinary, effectively deciding who would or would not be president. In both cases, the justices knew the country was waiting on them, and they showed that they had no trouble resolving a legal dispute rapidly. The January 6 charges against Mr. Trump are similarly consequential. Never before in American history had a sitting president interfered with the peaceful transfer of power. No matter their positions on Mr. Trump and his eligibility to run again, all Americans have a compelling interest in getting a verdict in this case before the election. For that to happen, the Supreme Court needs to rule on Mr. Trump's claim of executive immunity one of a narrow category of appeals that can stop a trial in its tracks, rather than having to wait until after conviction to be filed. The former president's argument is that his actions to overturn the election were taken in the course of his official duties, and thus that he is absolutely immune from prosecution for them. It's an absurd claim, as Judge Chutkin explained in denying it on December 1st. Quote, Whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass, she wrote. Quote, Defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade criminal accountability 
that governs his fellow citizens, unquote. Mr. Trump made two additional arguments involving double jeopardy and the First Amendment that were even weaker than the immunity claim, and Judge Chutkin denied those as well. She was probably tempted to toss out all of them as frivolous, as so many of Mr. Trump's delaying tactics, dressed up as legal arguments, turn out to be. Instead, she erred on the side of caution, because no one has ever made such arguments, so there's no legal precedent for assessing their validity. Of course, the reason no one had made these arguments is that no former president had been criminally charged. This is classic Donald Trump, freeloading on everyone else's respect for the law. You can drive 100 miles an hour down the highway only if you are confident the other cars will stay in their lanes. The irony is that even as he seeks to delay and obstruct the justice system, Mr. Trump is bolstering the case for a speedy trial thanks to his repeated threatening outbursts on social media. He has attacked the judge, the prosecutor, and others, including those who are likely to testify against him. Statements like those endanger the safety of the witnesses and the basic fairness of the trial, and have resulted in a gag order against the former president. But they are routine for a man who has spent a lifetime acting out and daring decent Americans everywhere to do something, anything, to stop him. Quote, he keeps challenging the system to hold him accountable. Christy Parker of Protect Democracy, a nonpartisan advocacy group, told me. Most other defendants who behaved in this way would risk being thrown in jail for violating the conditions of their bail, she said. But, quote, no one wants to see him locked up prior to trial. It's not going to be good for American society, unquote. She was referring to the propensity for threats and violence that Mr. Trump's supporters, egged on by their overlord, have shown in the face of any attempt to hold him to account. At this point, however, many Americans have attempted that risk as part of the price of cleansing the nation of a uniquely malicious political figure. We know the violence is coming, just as we know Mr. Trump will claim that any election he doesn't win is rigged against him. Quote, the best way to do anything about this is to have the trial soon, Ms. Parker said. Right now, there are nine people in America who can help guarantee that is what happens. Next, we have an editorial which appeared in the Des Moines Register, written by Lucas Granmeyer on behalf of the Register's editorial board. The title is, Iowa Regents Rolled Over on DEI, So University Presidents Must Resist Anti-Woke Attacks. The board running Iowa's public universities decided their Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, programs were bad and wasn't about to let any facts change that. It's hard to draw another conclusion after reading a Board of Regents task force report, and especially after Regents discussed and then approved recommendations on November 16th to slash programming and, probably, jobs. Republican legislators made obvious this spring that they view DEI as a tool of social division and radical left, quote, woke indoctrination that stifles speech 
and gives out unfair advantages. The Board of Regents can take a hint and set up a study of DEI. Lawmakers formerly ordered one, too, for good measure. That the task force landed on gutting DEI is not a surprise. But the Regents didn't bother to justify their move, not even by pretense. It will take months for changes to play out. The three universities are now supposed to get started interpreting and implementing their overseers' recommendations. In that time, the university presidents should demonstrate some spine that the regents apparently lack and work to preserve, not dismantle, their existing DEI infrastructure. Representative Taylor Collins, the Minneapolis Republican whose anti-DEI bill helped set this waste of time in motion, posted on X after the task force report was published, quote, Iowa will no longer bend the knee to the DEI-CRT agenda being pushed at our public universities, unquote. But if there's truly evidence of an insidious critical race theory agenda, the regents sure didn't bother to mention it publicly. Instead, they praised the university's DEI programs while approving steps that undercut or outright demolish them. Quote, we are formalizing a practice that the universities have already been doing, said Regent Greta Rouse. Regent David Barker, quote, I learned from this review that our universities are welcoming places, unquote. Regent Jim Landemeyer said that support services that are part of DEI programs have helped to boost retention and graduation rates for various groups. Occasional problems have generally been resolved, Regent said. Don't do anything unless you're forced to, Regents direct. The lead direction the Regents issued is to, quote, restructure the central university-wide DEI offices to eliminate any DEI functions that are not necessary for compliance or accreditation, unquote. Even if this were a good idea, it would be a dispiriting way of putting it. Quote, we don't have the courage of our convictions to actually wipe out DEI and accept any funding and litigation consequences, so we'll hide behind this unambiguous standard, unquote. The idea is actually quite wrong-headed, of course. The other recommendations range from superfluous, codify things the universities are already doing, to ironic, launch a DEI-like effort to attract conservative-leaning faculty. The report looks with suspicion on any initiative that's marketed to specific demographics. It's well and good to be sure that support services are available to all students, including those who don't fit into diversity groupings. But if the regions really believe any form of specific outreach or assistance is inherently suspect, where does that end? Will all 31,000 University of Iowa students be allowed to walk on the Gurdon Athletic Learning Center for tutorial and other support? Is the geographic preference in Iowa State's Hickson Scholarship Program, which helps one student annually from each Iowa county, inclusion run amok? The report spends little time on the most valid DEI criticisms. That's not to say that all DEI programs 
are beneficial or cost-effective. An appendix to the report shows 61 people employed in various UI departments working on DEI and earning $5.4 million in salaries alone. It's 56 people making well over $4 million at ISU. Legislators or the regents might well be justified in sending a message about administrative bloat. But if that were their motivation, they could say so directly. And the legislature for many years now has been making the point with its lackluster financial support for higher education. DEI, at its purest, exists to push back on the tendency of in-groups to resist and reject people who are different. It accomplishes this by educating everyone about people's backgrounds and perspectives, by questioning whether supposed meritocracies are truly free of bias, and by identifying and remedying obstacles to equal opportunity. This endeavor can and does produce excesses, such as conditioning employment on workers' affirmation of ideological statements. DEI can and has been associated with efforts to cancel people with different opinions. Indeed, the University of Iowa has infringed on conservative-leaning students' First Amendment rights more than once, and courts have been correct to smack down such muzzling. But again, the regents found no other pattern of such problems in Iowa, yet they chose to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The regents' DEI task force surveyed students, faculty, and the public about their views on the programs. The results reflect a mess of self-selection, but they certainly lend no support to the regents' actions. Over 80% call existing DEI efforts important. It's still true that rural Iowa is mostly white and Christian, which suggests that many college students are essentially experiencing a diverse environment for the first time. Understanding other cultures and perspectives will only become more important as Iowa's demographics steadily become less homogeneous. The university presidents need to stand up for DEI. Two of the nine regents voted against some of the recommendations, arguing that students' wishes were being pushed aside and that Florida's and Texas's DEI strategies, which the recommendations reference explicitly, shouldn't be presumed wise. Quote, What happened to our peer groups at each of our universities? asked Regent Nancy Dunkel, a former Democratic state lawmaker. Dunkel also said some of the direction amounted to micromanaging. Will the report satisfy DEI critics in the legislature? Responding to an emailed interview request, Collins wrote, quote, I don't participate in biased opinion pieces. He told a register reporter he wants to wait and see how Regent's directions are implemented. Since the Regent's wouldn't, it's up to the schools to find the resolve to resist the mischaracterization of DEI. Presidents Barbara Wilson at Iowa, Wendy Winterstein at Iowa State, and Mark Nook at Northern Iowa can insist on interpreting, quote, not necessary for compliance and accreditation as narrowly as possible. The presidents can assert the value of thinking critically about biases and obstacles 
and opportunity, and they can stand up for members of disadvantaged groups, for their students' bodies as a whole, for the state's businesses, and for their own employees, the ones whose work the regents couldn't find fault with. Next, we turn to the Storm Lake Times Pilot newspaper for an editorial written by Art Cullen, No Solution on the Horizon. The Israel-Palestine conflict is among the world's oldest, longest-lasting, and most intractable, now officially 75 years old, dating from the creation of Israel in 1948. Its actual origins predate that year by many decades, going back at least to the late 19th century, and its causes continue today for essentially the same reasons as when they began. No attainable solution appears yet on the horizon. For 400 years, from the early 1500s to the early 1900s, the Ottoman Turkish Empire governed Palestine and most of the Middle East. By World War I's onset in 1914, the Ottoman regime had weakened considerably, and the empire's leaders fatally allied themselves with Germany and Austria-Hungary, the central powers, in that conflict. The powerful British military drove the Ottomans from power over the next few years, and in the fall of 1918, the Turks capitulated to the alliance of Britain, France, Italy, and the United States, as did the other Central Powers. Against the Ottomans, the British had enlisted many of the region's Arab tribes, who were only too glad to throw off the Turkish yoke. Britain had promised the Arabs that, for their help, they would secure their independence from foreign domination in the war's peace treaty. But the secret Sykes-Picot Agreement, drawn up by Britain and France in 1916, indicated something entirely different. Sykes-Picot divided up the now-defunct Ottoman Empire outside the Arabian Peninsula between Britain and France in the form of so-called mandates. France took charge of Syria, Lebanon, southeast Turkey, and nearby environs. Britain gained control of Jordan and southern Iraq and Palestine. When the new Bolshevik government in Moscow revealed the secret agreement in November 1917, the British were embarrassed and the Arabs were furious. But perfidy wasn't Britain's only problem in Palestine. Another was the rise of Zionism in Eastern Europe. For several centuries, anti-Semitism had been a fact of life in Russia, especially after the Tsars steadily acquired portions of Poland, which had a relatively large Jewish population. Consequently, the 1881 assassination of Tsar Alexander II, for which Jews were wrongly blamed, sparked widespread anti-Jewish pogroms across Russia. The pogroms and Russia's repressive politics drove some 2.5 million Jews to Western Europe and America in the 35 years before the outbreak of World War I. In addition, the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine captured the dreams of increasing numbers of Russian and Polish Jews, and Jewish emigration to Palestine grew accordingly. In 1917, 
British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour issued a statement calling for establishment of a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. The result was predictable. Palestinians, overwhelmingly Muslim, vociferously resented British creation of a Jewish state on Palestinian territory, especially after Britain had reneged on its pledge of Arab independence. Palestinian resentment exploded in 1936 into a full-scale revolt against British rule. The Brits responded harshly, deploying over 100,000 troops who employed imprisonment without trial, whip lashings, house demolitions, and collective punishment against villages and families. Jewish paramilitary groups assisted British forces. Estimates calculated that 10% of the adult Palestinian male population was killed, wounded, deported, or imprisoned. The revolt was crushed, and Palestinians were left without local leadership. World War II, which in Europe began in 1939, brought the Holocaust with its unimaginable German cruelty to the Jewish people. Sympathy for Jews grew steadily within the Allied nations, giving impetus to the concept of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Meanwhile, violence between Arabs and Jews in Palestine grew more widespread. Its intensity weakened Britain's governing control over the territory, and the creation of the United Nations after Germany and Japan's defeat gave Britain the opportunity to divest its mandate responsibilities. In early 1947, the British government announced its wish to terminate the mandate and asked the United Nations to discuss the future of Palestine. Britain said it would not accept any solution that didn't have buy-in from both the Arab and the Jewish communities there. In November 1947, the UN General Assembly recommended partitioning Palestine into an independent Arab state alongside a Jewish state and the special international regime for the city of Jerusalem, unquote. Zionist leaders accepted the plan, Palestinian Arab leaders rejected it, and all independent Muslim and Arab states voted against it. Violence erupted immediately, with hundreds of Arabs, Jews, and British killed over the next several months. It was to become the result of the many, many such outbreaks in subsequent years. The Jewish forces proved victorious. Some 700,000 Palestinians fled or were driven from their homes. In May 1948, Jewish leaders in Palestine declared the establishment of a Jewish state to be known as the State of Israel. U.S. President Harry Truman announced American recognition of the new nation the next day. Subsequent fighting resulted in 350,000 more Arab Palestinians leaving newly conquered areas. A number of short-term wars between Israelis and their Palestinian and neighboring Arab national opponents took place over the next several decades, each ending in an Israeli victory and strengthening Israeli geographical control, as well as domination of Palestinian life by Israeli regulations. Israel continues to build Israeli settlements in the Palestinian West Bank, an activity opposed by nearly all members of the United Nations, including the United States. 
last month's brutal Hamas attack on Israelis and foreign nationals in southern Israel, together with the taking of some 240 hostages back to Gaza, is the latest iteration of the violent 75-year conflict. Neither side appears ready to negotiate the crucial sticking points of disagreement. In fact, they seem more hardened in their positions. If any progress toward peace has been made since Britain gave up its mandate in 1948, it's pretty hard to see. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 15th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just go to our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music